From west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hey there, hi there, ho there, and welcome to episode 210 of the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian, and I am joined by my co-host, executive producer, and good friend, Craig Williams. Craig, how are you today? I'm doing okay. How are you, Michael? I'm doing fine, thank you. So I I woke up today and I saw on Facebook, was it today or yesterday, everybody scraping ice there in Orlando off their windshields and yeah. and all that. So I saw you got got a bit of cold weather there. Elsa blew through there, I guess. Oh, huh? it's and <laughs> you know, uh that's what it's been like in a little bit of the past week, but it's it's not over for us. Uh, you know, this is this is Friday on Sunday of this week uh, to really date this. It's we're supposed to get feels likes in the low twenties. Oh wow! I, I, I think it, that would officially be the coldest temperatures that I have ever had to deal with since I've lived in Florida and. Um, the, actually on the, the one night this past week, uh, there was, there's a meteorologist in Orlando, Tom Terry. And, you know, we, when we go through hurricane season and there's a hurricane coming our way, he's, he's not a joke at all. He's a really brilliant meteorologist. Uh, but the joke is every time Tom Terry takes off his suit jacket, that's when you have to really get worried about the hurricane because he means business. <laughs> and he posted on his social media that, uh, up in Apopka, there was what he actually believed to be snow falling. Um, it, oh, it my was, goodness. It was mist that was uh, it was cold enough in the air to actually turn into flakes. And it, you know, it, it never got that way for me, which I'm 10-ish miles south of there. So that, that makes a huge difference. But it, it, it's been cold. It's been cold. And uh, I'm... I'm looking forward to it. I hate, though, that I had to turn on my heater for the second time ever in Florida. (laughs) Um, But I care about my dogs more than I care about myself. So I'm okay just putting on blankets. They can't. So I turn the heat on for them. You have to get them little jackets, cute little jackets. No, no, don't. Now you sound like (laughs) Kylie. (laughs) That's why they have fur. Uh, well, uh, hopefully the uh, citrus industry doesn't get wiped out. I, I'm keeping an eye on the uh, movie Trading Places with Dan Aykroyd and Eddie Murphy to kind of keep an eye on the citrus situation here. That's a terrible oh, okay. joke and callback, but that's what the whole movie revolves around in the second act. My bad. Uh, well, watch, watch, out, watch the poor little orange bird that he doesn't um, get frozen. He'll fall from a tree. Yes. <laughs> Well, this week we are back to talk about Destination D23 2021. We, uh, our last two episodes, we've talked about the first, um, 
uh, Friday and, and what went on on Saturday. We're here now talking about Sunday. So I, I have my notes here and we'll get into, um, see how far, hopefully we can cover everything. We'll see how far. I don't even remember anymore yeah. how much went uh, on. This one was a, a bit of a mixed day because it started with the Disney Plus panel, which was something mm-hmm. a lot of people are excited for. Some people expected celebrities. Technically, we did get well. I, I don't want to say just we'll one get celebrity. Into, we yeah. we d- we got one major celebrity. I'll say mm-hmm. that much. Uh, and then after that, it went through uh, the. There was the Disney Wish panel. There was the. Um, was this the day that had the panel with the 50th anniversary book or was that the day before? Um, well, I know that we, they had, they talked about delicious Disney. They did. Talk, uh, yep, the yep, 50 yep. years of Walt Disney world. And th- there was a lot about merchandise. That I remember that. One. Yeah. And I remember the musical the, attractions yep, of Walt Disney world. That's exactly what I was going to say. And the random performances at the very <laughs> yes yes and then you're going to have to talk about the evening entertainment because i did not go to that because i had another event to go to not i think i think because i went to the christmas party at the magic kingdom but the disney plus season streaming's ugly sweater party which you enjoyed and so we'll talk about that at the end well i i think i don't want to correct you i believe you were packing to go home the next day and you needed some extra time, but I will make sure that it is a uh, glorious three-hour finale to oh, okay. All Nations, but mostly. Yeah, maybe I was packing, but I think I had dinner or something also you scheduled did. with people. So You absolutely did. Something you're good. at um, Polynesian, I believe. Oh, yeah, you're right. I did. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, the day started out as a sizzle reel of nighttime and daytime entertainment, and they played the Spectra Magic score to that. So a little history of that. Then they had a performer singing a blues version of There's a Great Big Beautiful Tomorrow. And then uh, and then also they had um they sang the theme Reimagine Tomorrow Where We All Belong. I think it was Jeremy Pesia? Something like that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I liked I liked actually his performance. I remember the jazz, the, the blues version of There's a Great Big Beautiful Tomorrow I enjoyed. You know, we heard so many. <laughs> it's really hard for me to remember <laughs> the specific one, but I I think I I think I do remember liking this version. There was one that I adamantly disliked, but this was one of the better ones. And then Nan Song from D23 and Shelby Curry uh and and correct me if I'm wrong with these names because I'm trying to read my writing because I was writing so quickly. It, they're from Disney Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Team. And they talked about the Reimagine Tomorrow initiative and a Disney's belief that inclusion is for everyone and accurate representation um, for in all divisions. And that's pretty much all I jotted down for that. Yeah, and I, if I remember correctly with that, that was a lot of uh, talking about, you know, kind of what the Great Big Beautiful Tomorrow, as you can tell from what we've said so far, there was multiple people who were able to come up and sing takes on it throughout it. So it was, you know, it, it was a shoot off of the 
we're we're trying to include more people in the Disney brand, which I, I think that's perfect. Um, mm-hmm. Even even when it's not a style you're used to, but that that was kind of the beautiful part of it, and why there's a great big beautiful tomorrow was a good song to work with it because you know in the in the disney world soundtrack that you can hear any day now there's four distinct versions of it and we got to hear a a jazz version we got to hear a a rap version in that way so uh oh yeah i remember the rap version yeah so i i yeah i i I think the uh I, i think their message got across and it's a message that everyone can get on board with and that it's you know there's there's no two disney fan that's the exact same so it's cool that they're recognizing it and opening the door to allow as many people in as possible and also give as many people uh, a platform to share their love of disney and Mm -hmm. and their talents yeah then they had a sizzle reel of disney plus um shows and films because that was the next panel um here they talked about Disney Plus, and so Jenny and Andre, um, they were the hosts of What's Up Disney Plus, and the first look was Diary of a Wimpy Kid. It, it's an animated film. They showed the animated film trailer. It debuted. Remember, this was in the future at the time, but it debuted already on December third. And they brought out Jeff Kinney. He's the author and executive producer. And he did the character design. So his his 2D drawings are as simple as possible. Then Disney rendered them in 3D. And uh, his advice for middle schoolers, because he was asked, was, um, it gets better. And uh, let's see. He And then they went through, I, I was not familiar with the books, I don't remember if my children read them. No, uh, or anything past their age. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. If anything, your granddaughter <clears throat> would um, be familiar with them now, but. and she is because yeah. she's talked about them when she was little. And um, anyway, the 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 whole che- touching the cheese incident, which I didn't understand until. Um, they sh- they finally showed a clip about that. Uh, th- that incident is based on a true story. And so there's a piece of cheese and it appeared on a basketball court at a, uh, at a school and, and, and everyone, um, avoided the court for years. So nobody picked it up. He said they just avoided the court and he can't say what happened to it because it would spoil the series. <laughs> Did did they show a clip of that, or did I just finally find a clip of this whole cheese incident? Because I've seen it. I I feel like I remember the clip of it. Yeah, that's what I think so. I might be making it up myself, too. Yeah, I might have looked it up, or they've showed it on Disney Plus um, clips from it or something. Because I know I've seen it since then, so I knew what they were talking about. And actually, I thought this looked really cute. Yeah, the, um, I, I didn't watch it yet. I mean, it's been out for, you know, as we've said, this was back then. This was all in the future. It's been out for a while now. I still haven't watched it. I I don't want to spoil the end for the season streamings party, but they handed us out uh, Hawkeye, um, uh, a Hawkeye uh, stocking cap, I guess, you know, kind of like a Santa hat. And if you had a special sticker inside yours, then you got an autographed copy of Diary from a Wimpy Kid. They, you would go up and uh, 
Jeff Kenny would sign for you. And I actually won one. And, oh, uh, cool. I, I, I told him because he, we had a, a press thing after the Disney Plus panel. And so I got to ask him a few more questions. And he really sold me on wanting to check out the series and he 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 recognized me and said you were in the media thing earlier and and such and i you know he was the kindest person so i really do want to give it a shot because i know i know uh you know over the years kylie and i have tried to like uh you know, sponsor kids for christmas and stuff so i've bought multiple copies of diary of a wimpy kid <laughs> some in the series uh to give away as gifts because that's what's been on christmas list so i mm-hmm. i'm very intrigued in the series i just need to actually give it a real effort yeah yeah and i and i the clips they've shown on disney plus i can identify with like you're you're trying to look cool in middle school and then your friend shouts from across the court the schoolyard or down the hall hey do you want to come over and play <laughs> Because you're in that transition phase from being a little kid to sort of trying to be the sophisticated, bigger kid and and all that. And I thought, okay, I think I've been in that situation. I've probably been the kid that shouted, do you want to play, rather than trying to act cool. But um, anyway, so it looks really cute. It really does. It does, yeah. So, but okay, then they brought out Kiki palmer and she's the host of foodtastic and this is where artists create extravagant disney scenes works of art out of food that was set to premiere december 15th so if you watch this show i did not watch it yet but every time i go on disney plus i am so close to clicking play so on am I. I i think it is incredible and honestly i probably would have already watched it if it wasn't for the fact that like over the holidays i was watching holiday wars and in other holiday cooking shows because i do love a good uh, a good baked goods designing show mm-hmm. and this one i mean it mixes disney with it it just looks so cool but then it's like oh you know what I could watch The Simpsons for like the 900,000th time, and that's usually what I end up on. Yeah, <laughs> I've started to um, watch them again. But, I, I, yeah, I Carol and I used to love Cake Boss on the Learning Channel, which I think uh, the Learning Channel stands for the lowest common denominator. <laughs> but um used to love that. So I thought, okay, this sounds like a show I would enjoy. But, yeah, I've not gotten around to watching it yeah and and they showed us the sizzle reel there and it looked impressive and i've watched it every time i like hover over it on disney plus and i'm like gosh it's really cool but uh i just i haven't pressed the button and that's that's half the battle it's just pressing watch (laughs) yeah then they pushed the the disney bundle they showed clips from hulu uh, uh, season two of something, and I started to write the great, and then I didn't finish it because I think I got distracted by the next guest who came out, oh. and I stopped writing. I think you so. would actually like the great, though. Just oh, just it is saying. called the great. Oh, yeah, okay, it's on um, Hulu. It's uh, I, he plays Beast in the in the x-men movies the new ones not kelsey Grammer, but the the new trilogy um nicholas holt he was dating 
Jennifer Lawrence. He played J.R.R. Tolkien in that uh, movie about Tolkien. I think oh, called okay. Tolkien. Uh, that I, I would know about. He's I don't in, know all the other People magazine stuff you're talking about. <laughs> I know. I'm like trying to get at it by naming all these different things that they're a part of, but not their names. But it's Nicholas Holt and uh, L. Fanning. And it's the story of Kathleen the not Kathleen, oh, the, Catherine, the Catherine Great. the Great. That's serious. Yeah. Oh, I've been wanting to see that. It's okay. good. It's oh, Kylie okay. watched it, and I like just. I was kind of bitter about it at first because she started it without me, and then I started watching the episodes. I'm like, this is actually a really well done show. Um, okay, I have to add that to my list because I just started watching The Gilded Age on HBO Max, and so now I've got to get through that, and I can watch The Great. So much good TV. Yeah. But who who was <laughs> the next guest? Oh, Craig, maybe you should say who it was. But I was blown away by it. Um, Kermit the Frog. So, and and that's because Disney Plus is the streaming home of dis of um of of the Muppets, you know. And so, um, so of course, being an amphibian, he's been in many streams. <laughs> Kermit said, and Disney Plus is his favorite. Do you want to talk a little more about this? I I will try to remember as much as I can. Uh, just because I my notes on this day were a lot sloppier than they were the first day. I think it was just I was tired after <laughs> an entire first day. But uh, I'll say the first thing for people who watched at home. You saw Kermit as Kermit is, but then for everyone in the room who was close enough, we actually got to see uh, we got to see Kermit being performed live on stage with mm-hmm. no no hiding it. Which I and well, I they, do believe I thought that, they sort of were they they had like some black no no drapery wasn't there no he was not uh, I oh, okay. the one thing I forgot to always look it up afterwards I mean just based on the voice I do one thousand percent believe with it being D twenty three. I, it had to be Matt Vogel, but he was literally laying out on the floor with his with his arm up the entire time, like Muppet performers do, and uh, doing Kermit. Nothing, nothing blocking him. Oh, so and I, I was just seeing the curtain and behind them. Yeah, it was it was staged really well. So if you were watching it at home, you truly believed it was just Kermit. But we all got to see the behind the scenes, and I I actually liked part of this because. You know, uh, we, you and I have both seen panels with Muppet performers before where mm-hmm. they start off as themselves and then eventually they will, they will take over as the character. But it's just, it's like them and then the characters with them and they'll sometimes converse with each other and with the character. It's very, it's very different. But this was like a full blown performance, like what you would expect if you were on a soundstage watching the Muppets record something. So it, it gave me a whole bigger appreciation for everything they do. But uh, in terms of everything that Kermit went through, of course they were there really promoting uh, the Muppets haunted mansion. And so one of the things we got to see that they ended up re- releasing after the fact, I, I believe, I don't think it was out before was this hilarious blooper reel yes. from the entire thing. And it was, I, I've watched it a couple times. Um, it left me in stitches. And I, I was just so in awe of Kermit being there. This was, this was the absolute highlight of the entire weekend for me. It was so yeah. amazing. 
Yeah, Kermit had said it's been 10 years since the Muppet movie premiered. He said that's a week and a half in frog ears. <laughs> <laughs> and um, next year is the 30th anniversary of the Muppet Christmas Carol. Yes. <laughs> so, so I'm looking forward to seeing what they're going to do about that. And then Muppets Now, they said, was the first attempt at an unscripted show. And then Muppets Haunted Mansion was uh, the first Muppets Halloween program. And I think Kermit said it's a tribute to all Disney Haunted Mansions. He worked. He said it, it worked on every level except for the parts that were Muppetized. And then, um, and then it was, there was the blooper reel. Kermit's favorite Disney Plus show, he said, is the Imagineering story. And he hopes to find some management tips from it. <laughs> I do remember that. Yeah. 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 But it was just great. I mean, because it, it, he came across as so relaxed and it, it, it felt like it was a very natural conversation with some unscripted parts to it. So I thought it. I thought it was great. Oh, so. it it was it was. Uh, I cannot undersell how much of a highlight it truly was of the the entire event. Um, it, uh, yeah. I I will never forget that moment sitting in that room. I I think I took maybe like three four hundred pictures that entire event, oh, my and goodness. I would say that I would say that most of them were just solely. <laughs> this portion well i know what the thumbnail photo for this episode's going to be (laughs) oh it it probably will be and like i but i i yeah i i just cannot i cannot say it enough that this was this was such a surprise that i never expected and um i i am so glad to see that disney in this moment they embrace the muppets because it's something that i've always wanted and they they truly did so a a highlight absolute highlight absolutely i agree with you absolutely so um then the next um show they promoted was welcome to earth in which will smith goes around the world seeing uh the greatest wonders and they showed a 10 minute clip of that i think he was going in a submarine wasn't he a little two-person submarine? Uh, I think so. I that remember, was one of the clips. I remember pulling out my computer as soon as this part started because I was like, <laughs> because you were googling Will Smith to find out who he was married to yeah. and all that stuff. Who, who is he? No, we all know it was Jada Pinkett Smith. Come on, Michael. Yes. No, I was. I uh, I know for a fact I was actually hooking up my camera to my computer to look at my Kermit photos. <laughs> <laughs> so you were done for the day. So. <laughs> I I wasn't completely done, but I was like, I'm gonna watch this anyways. Why pay attention to a ten minute clip and a part that gives me like no context? Like I'll I'll watch it eventually down the road. Yeah, yeah. I haven't watched it yet, but neither I have I. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Then the next pan. That was the end of that panel. The next panel was about the Disney Wish, creating and creativity and inspiration set sail. And they had the cruise director, Ashley Long, and then they had Denise Case, and then that was like the last name I got. Because they were just sort of um they were just rattling off names. Yes. And, and I don't think they displayed the names for this one. I don't have a photo of that. Yeah. And then they, uh, anyway, so they showed the Grand Hall, which is the atrium, and it was going back to their theme park roots in, in designing this with Main Street USA, um, 
you know, we all know the story, the setting, the characters. So when you go to the Grand Hall, it's a, on the ship, it's a fairy tale setting with, and there's a stage in there to provide um, storytelling and um, entertainment. So that's going to be interesting to see what they do with that. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, and it looks very pretty. So, and I think I've since heard them compare it to the atrium or the grand hall being there, the castle of the ship, you know, that focal point of the ship, the way a castle is at one of, at, you know, the castle parks. Yeah. Well, it's not just going to be a focal point. It's also going to be a place for, for entertainment. So Mm -hmm. I feel like it's going to be, it is going to be like the castle in that way. Like, especially, um, our our Cinderella castle in Walt Disney World having the four court stage that it's you know you come to the castle to watch well in normal times you come to watch what's on right. the stage and I feel like that's kind of how the atrium is here it's it, mm-hmm. it's always a point on all the ships but this one it seems like they're taking it to the next level yes absolutely then they talked about dining so they the one is and you know that they're going to continue the rotational dining as they do on the other ships so on different nights you're in a different dining room and your server follows you um so one room is um the arendelle a frozen dining adventure so all of your fruits are by stouffer's and and they're all frozen <laughs> No, oh no, that would be uh, Pete would then say no. That's Tony's Town Square. <laughs> uh, anyway, that no, actually Liberty Tree Tavern. That's the Liberty? one he feels. Oh really? I okay. I ate there on my last trip to Walt Disney World and thoroughly enjoyed it. I'll, it was uh, my first time eating there. We'll keep that a secret. Okay. All right. <laughs> Anyway, this is going to be a theater and around with a stage in the center. And Anna, Elsa, Kristoff, Olaf, and Oaken, they're going to be throwing a party for the wedding of Queen, Queen Anna and Kristoff. And then I assume then they're going to go to one of the major suites to have their honeymoon. And, and that's an image. <laughs> Try to erase that one now from your, from your brains, kids. Thanks. Alex. Um, <laughs> anyway, so and um, they said that um, Imagineering has provided great infrastructure for this. So, uh, so I guess there's going to be a show going on as as we eat our meals there. Yeah, this is uh, following in the footsteps of on the Magic. It's the uh, Rapunzel Tangled Restaurant, and then on the um, the Wonder, it's Tiana's place with princess and the frog. So mm-hmm. I, I like that they're continuing this trend. I think it's, it's definitely, it, it's definitely something that sets Disney cruise line apart from everything else. Mm-hmm. I agree. Although the dining experience is different from any other cruise lines. And then, and then after, of course, the, the queen Anna and Christoph wedding, when they update this restaurant, it'll be Arendelle, um, you know, Anna and Christoph's birthing adventure. I don't think I, just, I want to eat there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, the other restaurant. I made that last part up. I haven't figured it out. The, uh, the other, the other uh, restaurant is Worlds of Marvel Restaurant, and it's a technology showcase that brings the Avengers on the ship. So there's a, um, what was it? A qu- I wrote there's a quantum, there's a something on the ship. Yeah, it's um, uh, on, on I- each table. 
Yeah, I forget the exact name, but it's supposed to, you know, just like Ant-Man, it can shrink or grow food. Yep. So this shrinks, it's supposed to shrink the ship. And it attracts Thanos. And then Captain America and Captain Marvel come to save the day. Sure they will. mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's going to be interesting to see what that is. So, um... Yeah, and not then, the restaurant I'm most excited for, honestly. Yeah, well, if the food's good. I don't know. It'll, it'll be interesting. So, anyway. And then there's the, um, they, then they talked about the Wish Tower Suite. Yes. And it's inspired by Moana. And this is inside the funnel where they didn't, they used to have a teen club. On the other ships, there's a teen yes. club. Yep. On some of them in the funnel. So this now, there's a tower suite. I'm sure Pete has, has booked it already. He has not. Um, <laughs> he has not? Not yet? No, oh, not yet. Surprised. Oh. Anyway, the ac- access is on deck 12, and it's a two-story um, in height, and, and there's a, with a spiral staircase. And in the children's room, there's a fiber optic ceiling with constellations of Moana characters. And the, there's a chandelier with um, seashells. Yeah. And, and also bunk beds that look very similar to the same bunk beds on the Star Wars Galactic Star Cruiser. <laughs> Coincidence? I think not. <laughs> okay. And then, uh, and then there is also the there's the Aqua Mouse. And and this is where families want to be immersed in the world of Mickey Mouse in a water ride, is what this is. So the story starts in the queue. There are two shows. Um, one is the Swiss Meltdown. Uh, Mickey and Minnie are taking you on their version of a shore excursion. And you see the story in the portholes in the queue. So then there's a uh, the footage of seven, I think they showed a seven of nine scenes and um, Mickey and Minnie climb the Alps, but Peg Lake Pete's um, but, uh, the sun melts the snow. I wrote, but Peg Lake Pete. And then I went into the sun melts the snow and you ride down the mountain and you'll get squirted with water as you pass the portholes. Yeah. And you'll see the actual, uh, the screens playing as you're going. So it's, it's an actual attraction versus just a water mm-hmm. ride because the story will be immersed with you. Yeah, it, this looks like a lot of fun. Yeah, and uh, yeah. it, at the end of the day, all it has to do is be another aqueduct, but with the added addition of screens, it just makes it that much cooler. So yeah. it, it doesn't have to be mind blowing, though. It's just it's it's neat. It's a it's an added yeah. bonus of being on Disney Cruise Line. Yeah, I agree, and I like the aqueduct, so this should be fun. Then they said that there's an enchanted playhouse for adults. And I wrote Danny, so Danny must have started, must have talked about this. Because Sachi talked about the Aquamouse. That was one of the people. And Danny talked about the Star Wars Hyperspace Lounge. And it's an immersive experience for adults. The drinks are based on Star Wars. Um, There's, there's, antiquities from across the galaxy they showed clips of the space window scenes and like a jump to hyperspace to different times and locations from all the films they said there's lots of easter eggs in the lounge and you know again this is another space that reminded me of the galactic star cruiser i see that yeah it 
I, I mean, it does have that feel because the ultimate purpose of it is to make you feel like you are immersed in the Star Wars universe, but while you're at sea. And I, I you know, uh, on Disney Cruise Line, my least favorite bar on most of the ships is Skyline. And this is the replacement of that instead mm-hmm. of having the different, seeing the different cities that you're supposed to be. Uh, you know, sitting in as it's all happening. In this case, you're going to be seeing Star Wars in the distance of the the windows. And I, you know, I love it as a Star Wars fan. But when I'm hanging out at a bar, I like I I like more than that. I like the the idea of like trivia and talking to the people around you as much as I'm antisocial. And I I I like I like a more social status to that rather than oh i'm in this setting because of the scenes so i'm looking forward to seeing this one day but it's not impressing me at this moment yeah i also hope that they're large enough to accommodate the people who want to see it which they rarely are yeah yeah and then they have an oceaneer clubs for three to 12 year olds and there's um a ride studio where they can play, they can play, they can test rides, they can create their own, they can create rides based on Big Thunder Mountain Railroad, Space Mountain, and the Matterhorn, then test them. Um, it's also based on, on, there's a Marvel section, there's a Walt Disney World Imagineering Lab, which is all part of this play test ride area. And they said that the kids are the stars of their own stories. And then they showed, uh, as they always do, a a time-lapse video of the construction. Uh, The ship was built during the pandemic and set sail in the summer of 2022. So then the next thing where where they had the Disneyland Paris Ambassadors, and they did trivia um, the early years. So uh, anyway, so... That was fun. I got, I did better on this one. I got 162 out of 1,488. Another one I didn't play. But I didn't regret playing this one because I feel like, well, actually, I might have been at the restroom for this one. So I missed a lot on the questions. But there was one that I was like, I'm glad I didn't play that. I would have been embarrassed. (laughs) Anyway, then the next panel was the dawn of the Disney World. They had Steve Bagn. Bagnini? Is that how you say his name? Um, anyway, Steve he's... Bagnini, I believe. Bagnini, thank you. Yeah. So, yeah, now that you say it, I thought, okay, yes, that is his name. Um, he's in D23 and Walt Disney Imagineering. He's the co-author of uh, of the book, the portrait, A Portrait of Walt Disney World, 50 Years of the Most Magical Place on Earth, that was on sale there. I'm, in fact, I'm reading that book right now. I'm almost done. And um, they're influenced by, he said they were influenced by their memories and previous books on Walt Disney World. And they looked at Walt Disney World through the, um, sort of through the uh, themes of fantasy and discovery and tomorrow. And uh, I'm in the tomorrow section right now. And that, that's what I thought was interesting. They didn't just do like traditional books where they go through, okay, we'll start with Magic Kingdom. They give a little prehistory. They start with mm-hmm. Magic Kingdom, go through that park. Then they go to Epcot. Epcot. Then they go, you know, and da 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 They go through these themes. 
at, of like fantasy. And then what aspects of the whole Walt Disney World fall into the themes of fantasy? So they'll cover the parks, they'll cover different resorts, you know, all kinds of stuff. So it's a really interesting take on the park. And, uh, and they go into some history also uh, of the park as well as they go through all these themes. Yeah. So I think I know. Actually, I think I finished tomorrow. I'm starting at the adventure section. There's an adventure section in there as well. Yeah, it's an interesting take for sure, mm-hmm. though. And uh, I like it. It's a it's a fresh take. Exactly. Mm-hmm. That's that's the best part about it. It's fresh. Mm-hmm. Now they said um, Walt's parents met and married in Kismet, Florida, and then they moved to the Midwest after a freeze destroyed their orange trees. And in 1960s, another citrus freeze impacted the land value in Florida, and that may have influenced Walt Disney World being located there in Central Florida. So the book captures historical snapshots of the Walt Disney World story. And so Tim O'Day was one of the panelists, and he said there, or did he, no, was he, um, they brought in some of the folks through video. Yeah, uh, Tim was one of the ones that they had uh, do pre-recorded segments. So the hilarious part of his was that every single time, the first time he came on, he had like, I, I think it was just one of the book in the background. And then as it kept going on, there was more and more. So that it was like actively promoting, like we have this book. Don't you? Don't you remember? Uh, it, it was a, It was a nice gag. It was very much appreciated. Yeah, and uh, and one of the things that they do in the book also is that there are essays by different people associated with the parks. For instance, one is there's one by Roy Patrick Disney, and where he uh, where he and they highlight favorite cast members in there as well. So there could very well be cast members that you've met during your different trips to Walt Disney World. They're in there, such as the fellow who, uh, Carol and I met him several times, who's the greeter at the Grand Floridian, who's beloved, you know, by many people, who passed away uh, Was it Richard? a short time With ago. that one? Can't remember his name, but he's highlighted in there. He's one of many. So they highlight cast members like that. But I think there's even something, uh, an essay by Marty Sklar in there and, and all that. So, because um, they've been working on this book quite a while. Yeah, it, Grand Floridian, um, it was Richard. Okay. Also, I'm I didn't pick up on it before, and I just did now, and I'm wondering if there's a connection with it. So, Kismet was the town that Walt Disney's family grew up in, right? That his parents. That's were that's yeah, that's where Elias and Flora met, and all that. Yeah, and his grandparents are there, and I think um, his older brothers, two older brothers, were born there. So the interesting part is in the Muppets at Walt Disney World. Uh, Charles Grodin <laughs> constantly refers to the Muppets as the Kismet Gang. Oh, how and interesting! I what a little Easter egg! Yeah, I, oh, I it never, must be. It, I feel like it kind of has to be, but at the same time, like I get the joke. It's like I'm, I, I can't be bothered to learn the name of Kermit, so I'll call it Kismet. But it's just so funny if that's the case that there is a connection between. A random connection between the Muppets at Walt Disney World and the fact that uh, the Disneys lived in Kismet, Florida, at one point in time. So I, I apologize for the tangent there. It just oh no, that's fine. It, it just hit me right now. 
Yeah. And they were showing photos from the book in there, like um, mm-hmm. Windows on Main Street Windows with Bob Price Foster. Uh, there was, um, he was the master planner of purchasing land. So it was not to be traced back to Disney. He called himself Bob Price. And his recollections are captured in the book. Riles Island that we've talked about before was owned by Radio Nick, who collected reptiles, and he sold the land to um, 13 different families. And and so Bob Price, um, anyway, so they have a photo of that island there. And Bob bought more land than Walt wanted in six months, and then Walt wanted um, more land. And the parcels had been sold via mail order. And so Bob had to travel cross-country to negotiate with all the owners. And Bob now is 97 years old. And didn't they have a recorded interview with him? I feel like I remember that, I believe, yeah. Where he talked about all of that. Mm -hmm. And and he was was sharp. He did it. And then Tim O'Day shared uh, images and concept art of, like, the Boardwalk, Liberty Square, the Utilidors, the Carousel of Progress, all of which are in the book. And then um, they talked about – he talked about other names that they were going to give to Walt Disney World Resort, Walt Disney Vacation Land, um, Disneyana, Disney Worlds, um, you know, anyway – and, and but of course they ended up with Walt Disney World ultimately. Then they showed the genesis of the original logo, and they showed that. And then Kevin Kearns, um, he showed a bunch of um, park ephemera um, ticket books, the the preview month ticket from October first, um, various press passes, um, individual standalone tickets, the parking tickets, the recreation coupons that were like the precursor to Disney dollars. And then they had photos of Walt's first visit to Walt Disney World in 1965 after the press department. And they showed a photo of the flag um, for the dedication day that flew over the White House on October 1st. And then they raised it on October 25th for Walt Disney World's dedication. And it was gifted by President Nixon. And now you can see it on display in the Hall of Presidents. I Liberty tell Square. everyone about it. Mm-hmm. So do I. And and President Nixon gave it to them because he could not attend the park um, dedication for security reasons. So um, is that really it? Security reasons? It was that's what they other say. Stuff? <laughs> they say it was security reasons. That's why Bob Chapek didn't show up to Destination D23, actually. Security reasons. Uh, for security reasons. Yeah. I was that, I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> and then they, then they had, um, they had three people in Disney who all worked at the Contemporary 50 years ago. They had Peggy Farish, George Caligridis, and Debbie, whose last name I didn't get. And so, um. I don't have that written down either. Yeah. I feel bad. Yeah. Now, Peggy, when she arrived, she was struck by how rural it was. And the air was warm and humid with a big blue sky. And she was there for the announcement. And I'm pretty sure she had worked at Disneyland and got and and then and then was sent over, was hired to be part of the team for Disney World. Um, 
the model of phase one, she said there were 600 square feet. It was 40 feet across. And there was a presentation area filled with art, um, art figures, um, and um, all done by um, Waythel Rogers. And then Debbie grew up in Florida, and she had to learn what Disneyland was because she'd never been there. She wrote, and she wrote an essay in the book about this. And when she filled out the application to work at a preview center, and she met two Disney girls, as they called them, they, she said, they, they, she felt they were very sophisticated, and she knew she wanted to be wanted to have one of the 14 positions. So no one knew what Disneyland was. So there was great interest in the preview center. And um, so when you were well, she would welcome guests in the sign the guest book, then you'd view the film, you'd see the concept art, you'd have a glass of orange juice, and then you could purchase merchandise. So, so George applied for one of 55 positions for opening day and he walked into the hotel, um, housing office or hiring office and he was hired and went through traditions. He worked in the Hilton Inn, um, that Disney had leased. It's now the uh, Rosen Hotel until he moved over to the contemporary. And Debbie was named the first Walt Disney World ambassador, and she was flowing with her chaperone, who was an ex-Marine sergeant in Walt's plane, and stayed at the Disneyland Hotel. And the next day, she went to Disneyland, and she said it was like walking walking into Oz. And she was given 48 hours to learn um, the spiel, and, and was a tour guide in plaid. Can you imagine 48 hours not having been at Disneyland to learn everything oh, to be a, a plaid? Never. Absolutely never. <laughs> so, so she went into the tour guide lounge and learned how how um, how how much the guides loved Walt and how much they wanted to make guests happy and to make Walt proud. And she said the pulse of Walt is at Disneyland. And uh, the park whispers, this was Walt. And I thought, what, what a lovely way of talking about what makes Disneyland so unique. You know? I agree. Um, and, she, and then the opening management, management for Walt Disney World, for the Magic Kingdom, spent the summer at Disneyland learning what they could. And for the hotels, there was nothing to go on in the 70s. So they learned as they went and they pushed hard to get, um, just to get to solutions. And so Peggy started in 1965 at Disneyland and Walt still walked the park and Dick Nunes was running it and she learned that everyone was a VIP and on a first name basis. And then there was a celebratory barbecue after the announcement in Florida. She said it was with Roy and Edna. And um, Joe Fowler piloted the boat and all the hostesses were there. And um, she said Roy was just so appreciative of everyone's work. And, um, and she talked a bit about that, how Joe took them around on the boat. And I think Roy helped flip burgers and the barbecue and all that. Oh, I do think most of it was brought in by the hotel staff at the, at the um, Hilton Inn there. So, but, um, and then Debbie said, um, 
Oh, what was it? Oh, I can't read my writing. Talked about, oh, dedication day was her favorite day. And she met Lillian Disney backstage and drove her around Main Street in an electric vehicle to Town Square. And then um, George said the Millennium Village was special to him because they could add 50 more countries to Epcot and 600 um, cast members, two to 300 um, per group. And many of them have since become leaders in their own countries. And he was recently honored um, with the Main Street USA window also. And... And then they had Becky Claire and Disney legend Dick Nunes come out on stage. And they had a conversation with Dick Nunes. And um, so Dick played football in high school. He got a scholarship and to Stanford and to USC. And he graduated from USC. And there he uh, had a friend named Ron Miller. Of course, we know would go on to to marry the boss's wife or boss's daughter, Diane Disney. Um <laughs> Dick applied for a job at Disney and worked for Van France at a dollar eighty an hour, and he got. And he said he got paid more than his boss because he got overtime, and he worked his way up to um, attraction supervisor and then the park manager. And Mark uh, Walt would walk through the park and take Dick with him. So Walt once called him up to his apartment and asked, what can I do for you? And Dick said, we don't let our cast members smoke on stage. And when I reprimand them, they say, Walt smokes in the park. And he said, Walt never smoked in the park again. I thought the story was going to be that Walt allowed them to smoke backstage. (laughs) But no, it was Walt stopped smoking in the park. I mean, that'd be a fun story that we'd still be talking about to this day. If that was how it would have went, but yeah, that's not every story can be perfect. Well, I don't know, but considering that Walt was a chain smoker, that was a big deal. You know that he didn't that he was going to walk the talk. There. Yeah, oh, yeah, I mean it's 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 tough, it's tough, but he did he did what he had to do essentially. So I mean, good on him. Now, one day, Dick says he was in Frontierland, and Walt was in the tower on the Jungle Cruise and asked for Dick to come over. And Walt was upset that he had just gone on the three to four minute Jungle Cruise ride when it should have been seven minutes. And Dick asked Walt to show him how he wants um, the attraction to be. And he did. And Dick installed clocks on the boats. And, um, and then Walt, and then, and he's, and Dick said he thinks those clocks are still there so that the, the skippers can time themselves. And, um, Walt participated in a world's fair to use other people's money to create attractions and then bring them back to Disneyland. And Dick thought, um, where would I get a Snow White without a New York accent? Because Walt wanted the characters at the park. And so, anyway, that was his big problem. So, Dick also worked on Project X. And Walt um, saw that he had enough land to build Disneyland, Knott's Berry Farm, SeaWorld, a couple of cities. And if we're smart enough, we'll own most of it, said Walt. So, he heard about Walt's death on the radio. And he um, parked, and he parked, pulled over, and, and parked, and, and he cried. And then he thought, um, 
Walt would want the show to go on. So he called Card Walker and told him that, you know, that Disneyland should remain open. And then Card called Lillian and she agreed. So Lillian, or, or, so Lillian called Dick and told him Walt would have wanted the show to go on. So, um, so on, now on the plane when they were riding, um, Roy asked Dick if Walt Disney World would open on October 1st. And Dick said, under the current circumstances, no. And so Card Walker and Ron Miller started getting really upset. And Roy said, let him finish. And Dick said, we're working with Florida people who don't know what balsa wood is. (laughs) And Roy said, give him whatever he needs. And so people from California were sent out and they were called Nunes Raiders. So, and then, and then there's the story that we, we've told on the show too about laying sod at the contemporary resort where it was the night before dedication and all the cameras were going to show up and they still had to lay the sod. So they went everywhere. They got, first of all, they got everybody in the park to lay sod at the contemporary and they got sod from like everywhere they could. And people were saying, we don't know how to lay sod. And they literally had cars lined up with their headlights on so they could see in the dark. They were doing this throughout the night. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, and then Dick would just shout, people were saying, we've never laid sod. And Dick just shouted green side up. Yeah. And that became the, the the cry that everybody remembered. And then a few weeks later, or they replaced the sod mm-hmm. and all that. And then there was this whole thing about Bermuda shorts, because that just came up uh, a whole lot. A lot. With, <laughs> do you want to tell the Bermuda shorts story? I, I don't even remember all of the Bermuda shorts story. I know that, um, you know, he went on vacation in, mm-hmm. was it an island? Yeah, he went to Bermuda. He and his wife went on a cruise. Yes. I think they went to Bermuda. And he fell in love with a lot of the, uh, I, I, I would say he fell in love with a lot of the culture as well as the attire, uh, specifically mm-hmm. the Bermuda short, which of course is a, a, I don't want to call it a short short on men, but it is particularly uh, comfortable <laughs> in order to wear. And so it's not just that he brought it back. He made it a culture at Walt Disney World to wear yeah. these shorts. Yeah, because he thought in in the summer and the humidity, he thought it would make cast members more comfortable. Mm -hmm. So there were all these photos of Dick. And basically, he would be in a shirt and tie and a sports coat. And then these Bermuda shorts with then long white stockings up to his knee and all that. And he he was at multiple events where they had photos. Of him, because this was, I think, even with the um, when they were talking about the book, 50th anniversary book, this was one of the running gags. And so when they brought Dick out, they, of course, had to talk about the Bermuda shorts and and he explained the whole story. Yeah. Yeah. And all that. And then Dick said, um, Walt cared about his people and said um, that we have to take care of them. And so he said that Walt... Walt um, was very appreciative and, uh, oh, he's writing a book also. Walt's um, 
Apprentice, Keeping the Dream Alive by Dick Nunes. And it's supposed to be released in October 2022. And he wrote it because young people don't learn in school how to be successful. So I'm looking forward to that book coming out. Hey, maybe yeah, we could too. get... Maybe we could get Dick on the show. Oh, I would love to. He was, um, you know, besides Kermit, he was probably the next highlight. Was not yes. expecting it to be as entertaining as it was. But uh, after after a long panel regarding the 50th anniversary and the book, you know, not in a bad way. It was just information overload. It was really hard to process the amount that they were throwing at us in a short bit. Uh, Dick ended up being a fresh, uh, a breath of fresh air. And really slowed it down, brought it back around to what the entire panel's uh, purpose was. And, uh, you know, if if it was not the best promotion for his book, then I, I don't know what could be. Um, he had everyone in that audience uh, just just captured by everything he was saying. I agree. Yeah, I agree. So the next panel was um, the 50th anniversary Walt Disney World cookbook called Delicious Disney. They had Pam Brandon there, and um, and then they had uh, Marcy Kariker Smothers, who we've had on the show before. And um, so they talked about their favorite restaurants and, and all that and snacks and everything. So Pam, Pam said her favorite restaurant at Walt Disney World is Citrico's. And her favorite snack is the Magic Kingdom popcorn, which I agree with there. And Marcy said her favorite restaurant is Tiffin's, which is one of my favorites too. And, um, and her favorite snack is Adventureland egg rolls. So, so Craig, if they asked you that, what's your favorite restaurant? I've not eaten at all of them, but what's your favorite restaurant? I mean, that is a very loaded question, and it's not open right now, but I think the the restaurant that screams Walt Disney World the most to me is probably Hoopty Doo Review. Mm-hmm. So I would I, have to I, agree with yeah, that. Yeah, that to me, it's it's not the greatest food, but it is it is the experience that you don't quite get anywhere else. But yeah, I, I, w- I would agree. Yeah, I do not agree about the uh, Adventureland uh, egg rolls, spring rolls. I'm not. I'm not a fan. So uh, I, I've not had them, and that surprised me a bit, actually. But um, but I love. I always get popcorn whenever I'm at the Magic Kingdom. Oh, it just so it's like favorites. a movie theater. It just yeah. tastes different. Mm-hmm. So in in the book, they have um, appetizers cocktails and main courses so for pam this is her 22nd cookbook and it covers 50 years of recipes there's gone but not forgotten recipes um and the book has vintage pieces of art and fun stories um there's like like for instance there's artwork and stories from food rocks in it i have the book and i've gone i've gone through it and and it's fun just to read and look at the pictures. Um, Marcy learned that three things originated at Walt Disney World, not Disneyland. She said the Dole Whip originated at Walt Disney World in 1984. Then it went to Disneyland. And that I didn't know either. Yeah. She said. I was surprised mm-hmm. that it didn't originate in Hawaii of all places. But maybe maybe just in terms of Disney parks, they meant it originated in Disney World. Yeah. And the Mickey Mouse Bar originated at the land at Epcot when Nestle sponsored it. Again, that was news to me. 
And then character dining originated at the Polynesian Resort in 1971. And that didn't surprise me at all. Mm-hmm. And um, Marcy found the orange bird flip recipe in a 1971 Orlando Sentinel article. And they were asked, what were the top three pivotal moments in Disney dining? Pam said 1971, King Stephen's Banquet Hall with an upscale menu. Um, Dorothea Redmond designed um, the Liberty Tree Tavern and other restaurants and the, uh, and pavilions. And all of that artwork is in the book. In the 1980s, dining at Epcot with authentic, um, and upgrade upgraded restaurants with original menus, famous chefs, and all that. And then in 1995, when the California Grill opened with its open kitchen, which was a new idea at the time, and that was the introduction also of specialty dining. So, um, Marcy was asked, "What is her favorite interview?" In it, and she said, um, "Tom Fitzgerald for the Space Two Twenty Restaurant, um, Michael Eisner sort of wanted, um, oh, I don't know what is it um, for. Uh, he wanted like um, fan food, and so um, and and bread comes. It's it said um, it was there was this. Um, she said bread." Oh, and then there was this bread cones mm-hmm. um, yeah, for yep. food, and then it was too fragile when it was made by the by the Walt Disney World ice cream cone makers. So they carved out hoagies, and Marcy created a recipe for it in the book. Yeah, the the bread cones, like the uh, yeah. the cozy cones at Disneyland mm-hmm. now that you can get exactly. Uh, yep, oh, exactly. So good. So good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they are. They are. And, and yeah, and I, in fact, I looked up that recipe purposefully just to see. Okay, how difficult is this? I'm sure <laughs> whatever they say in terms of difficulty, it's ten times more difficult than they present it to be, and you will just be left with burnt bread every single time. <laughs> yeah, every recipe is yep. <laughs> a little more difficult than I than I anticipated to be. And then Pam was asked on um, what to look forward to, what she's looking forward to. Um, uh, she's looking for in January Smash Pop. It's a um, haunted mansion homage, and Blue Shrimp um, on the Galactic Star Cruiser. She really got into that immersion dining that we talked about, I think, in a previous episode. For Marcy, it was important to include Walt in a book about Walt Disney dining. And she said Walt loved fried chicken. He liked simple foods. And when Walt came to Orlando um, and Walt wanted fried chicken, they they got some and ate it in the Bronson house, which is um, backstage now. So he visited the area where um, Pioneer Hall is, and he loved the Golden Horseshoe Review. So the fried chicken recipe from the Golden... from, from the hoop to do review is in the book. So, and the last quote in the book, um, Walt in 1956, um, during a visit to Marceline, Missouri said, um, Roy is my big brother. He always took care of me. If it wasn't for Roy, Walt Disney world wouldn't be here is what, uh, that's the reason why, um, she included that 
quote in the book because if if it wasn't for Roy, Walt Disney World wouldn't be here. I mean, so. if this show has not proved that, then I don't know what will. Yeah, really, really. <laughs> and then from the vault, they had merchandising memories of Walt Disney World. The host was Ashley Eckstein, Eckstein again. And she modeled a new tracksuit from the vault collection with um, first year Walt Disney World artwork. And feel free to jump in and comment yeah. on any I, of this, w- Craig. I, I will. It's, um, it's the, I, the, it was a tracksuit of sorts. I'm tr- me trying to explain fashion. I absolutely cannot do so. But um, it it is now released. I've seen it at Magic Kingdom. It's a yellow sweatshirt, and it says Walt Disney World. It's yellow and black, and it's got like the. I think it has the castle on and the ship, and it's a beautiful, beautiful retro sweatshirt. And um, I, I know she was also wearing pants that matched it and such, but at least the, the sweatshirt part of that is, is now available. So, uh, she was, she was one of multiple people on the panel who was able to wear something that hadn't officially been released at that time. They got mm-hmm. many people excited. Yeah. Then they had Kelsey Williams, um, from the archives. Her favorite piece she had was these Mickey Mouse, um, ear hats. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, yeah, Angelique Vu. She modeled a new, um, a new cardigan. Yeah, it's like a cardigan um, Letterman sweater kind of, you know, what you would expect like a college person in the 1950s to wear. Mm-hmm. Danny Zuko and, when he's trying to get like fancier for Sandy. Oh, okay. <laughs> and then before they both become tramps. Yes. Uh, exactly. yeah, um, yeah, it was a great message to kids. That's why I don't like that movie. Um, anyway, uh, the first um, Dooney and Parks, um, they also had the first Dooney and, Dooney and Burke's um, mm-hmm. Disney um, collection also. They were displaying there, too. Disney Days collection, whatever it was. And then someone whose name I will never be able to pronounce. Kevin Michael... Le- I don't even know how to pronounce his last name. Yeah, I don't have his anyway, name. His favorite first. His favorite was the first headband in the 1980s, and he was wearing that. And then um, Cody Reynolds, uh, he liked the Donald Duck hat with googly eyes. <clears throat> and then I remember that hat. And then Richard Terpstra, um, he liked the Walt Disney visors sold in the 80s in multiple colors. Yep, and so was sporting one of them as well yes too. yeah they were they were all wearing their favorite yeah. gear here and yeah. the cool thing was uh kevin michael which i went through my notes and i specifically did not write down his last name uh because of you know the difficulty in the moment but he was wearing the uh the spirit jersey and i believe also the crocs that were like the original Magic Kingdom Park map that have come out in the past two weeks now at Walt oh, Disney okay. World and like has this. driven people crazy. I will be honest. I I only own one Spirit jersey, and it's a Muppets Haunted Mansion one that uh, was sold through D23. And this is the other one that I'm thinking about getting. But they are so expensive now. They're like $8. I don't like this. I don't like the Spirit jerseys, but I like the Crocs for like, and I quickly need to go out in the garden or something like yeah. that. With, with I wear me, for that. I can't spend that much on shoes because I will yeah. destroy them too quickly. But the spirit jersey, I'm like, I could wear that. But at the same time, I'm like, 
I use like I need more Disney shirts for when I go to Disney, but I will never wear that outside of Disney. So, um, just because it's it is almost too flashy. Like my Muppets Haunted Mansion one, I'll wear that anywhere. But the park map shirt, I mean, that thing is bright. It is mm-hmm. bright and it is busy. And I'm. Uh, this is me trying to mentally cope with what I want to do in terms of that. It'll probably sell out before I can get it. So they t- they said the vault collection launched on the 50th anniversary. The in- so for inspiration, they they sat in a room and discussed what to do to make the 50th anniversary special. So. Um, so at one table, they wanted to create products um, remembered by guests and, and make replicas and products inspired um, by the retro art. And, and that has proven to be very popular. And, um, and then they talked about an archives exhibit, the 50 Years of Bringing Home the Magic Archives exhibit of merchandise displayed chronologically with backdrops of shopping bags imagery. And that was the archives exhibit that was there. At um, D twenty at the D- destination D twenty three. So the seventies started with the Preview Center in ceramics. The eighties they had a cookbook and other things. The nineties was the twenty fifth anniversary. The light up Pfizer and figurines. And two thousand to twenty ten they had Pal Mickey magic bands, mini headband, um, color collections, and spirit jerseys, and all that. And I I think at one time at one point I had all those posted. On my Connecting mm-hmm. with Walt Facebook page. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they went to the archives to see the products so they could faithfully recreate them. And they came in bins from the warehouse um, from all around Los Angeles. And they said some of the merchandise was still in the original bags, even with the original receipts and all that. And then um, the original artwork was hand-drawn. Some um, off-model had to be digitally um, recreated. And they took photos and worked to recreate um, typography and artwork. And they created a style guide to create new products uh, with the original artwork. And the vault collection is available at the Marketplace Co-op at Disney Springs and the Main Street Cinema at the Magic Kingdom. And there's Easter eggs in the displays and on the merchandise. I I just hope that it's a collection that can continue after the 50th anniversary celebration is over because they have clearly, clearly found that Walt Disney World fans also embrace the past of mm-hmm. the entire resort. It's it's not just a Disneyland thing. It's also Walt Disney World people love the past. So I hope they stick with it and try to look at what they did before in terms of how they create merchandise for the future because a lot of the stuff is just so cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. So then they were all asked, what is their favorite item from the vault collection. So Ashley said it's the rock candy in the plastic box. You know, they sold that at Disneyland too. And I like that. I think I still have an empty plastic box, Disneyland plastic box somewhere. Kelsey said it was the Mickey Mouse back scratcher. Um, Angelique said it was the a Magic Kingdom Letterman jacket. Kevin said it was the preview center merchandise. Cody said it's the original plus plush set with oversized heads. 
Richard said it was a 12-page calendar. And then he had, um, then there were stickers, like he liked these wonky stickers and stuff. And they said there's going to be more merchandise introduced throughout the celebration. Yep. And I mean, that's already proven true. Uh, they, you know, this was before the second wave released. And in the second wave, they released a lot of the stuff that they were wearing on stage. Plus that awesome uh, Milton Bradley board game that I haven't picked I up want, yet. But I want that. I, I <laughs> promise you, Michael, as soon as I get to uh, Disney Springs and actually go to shop and not just for work, if they still have it, or Magic Kingdom, I will pick one up for each of us. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. It's so, so. cool. <laughs> and then they had um, secrets and stories of um, the Walt Disney World galleries. And so they showed an ad, take a look at where dreams come true. And then the Walt Disney Imagineering, they had the collections management team. So they had Debbie Van Harn, who's a curator, Jackie Herrera, who's a producer, Mike D'Amico, who's a story editor, and Jason Grant, who's a creative director. I thought there was more to their titles. I just wrote down the basic ones. Mm -hmm. And so they... um, some of the things that they showed, they, they, they showed, um, trying to, sh- trying to figure out. Oh, talked about the different galleries, art galleries around the resort property. So, and there's, there were a lot more than I realized. So, you know, there's the ones we, we all know, like Magic Kingdom, the Hall of Presidents. There's that gallery. There's Epcot. They said seven of 11 countries have a gallery. Um, and, and, Disney Hollywood Studios has the Walt Disney Presents. A couple of these, I I was surprised they considered them galleries. The ABC Commissary. Yeah. Um, and I mean, granted, the ABC Commissary does have props from ABC shows that they consider a gallery. So this was my problem with the panel. They were very loose on what is considered a gallery. And yeah. This entire panel felt like we need to fill a little bit of time, so let's promote <laughs> things you can go see in the parks without any weight at all. Yeah. And then they, the Star Wars launch bay was another one. Then I thought they were pushing it for Animal Kingdom. Um, Dinosaur and the Conservation Station? I don't know. I agree. Yeah. It, I, I hated this panel. I thought this was <laughs> just... It, this one felt shoehorned in with the rest of it. It didn't feel like a celebration of Disney or Walt Disney World. It felt like, hey, we do have these cool things that are also available. Oh, you don't care about them? Okay, it, well, it's it's still there. It's still there in case you want them. That's what it felt yeah. like to me. Yeah. And the resorts um, also have galleries to tell the story of the resorts, the contemporary the Wilderness Wilderness Lodge, Animal Kingdom Lodge. Now, I would consider definitely Animal Kingdom Lodge. I will give them to yes. be a gallery. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. uh, um, Coronado Springs, and then there were more that they said. Um, and then they they said there's more than twenty galleries around Walt Disney World, and they had they get fifty new pieces per year depending upon what is going on, and they manage five thousand two hundred plus objects per year and they asked what are their 10 favorite objects in no no particular order they change them all the time um let's see the um 
the Plains Regalia I wrote, the Creating Traditions Exhibited American Adventures on the American Indian Art, the contemporary, um, it's contemporary um, art that's still being generated today. Um, Jane Goodall's Chimpanzee Tools at the Conservation Station. And I thought, okay, all right, I can see how that could be gallery. Walt's Traveling Trunk at Disney Hollywood Studios in One Man's Dream. They said it was a studio at the studio prop shop and an archivist recognized it from a photo of Walt and Lillian. So I thought that was a neat little backstory there. Um, they said that Connor's Afghan at Disney Hollywood Studios in the ABC Commissary. I featured that in a dining review that I did there recently on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Disney Dining. So if there you want to see go. it. So not it only were you showing dining, you were showing a gallery. Yeah. And honestly, I think, I think this panel like seeped into my brain. And that's why I chose <laughs> that. Because there were multiple things I could have shown off. But I chose that one in particular. That's funny. I probably wouldn't have recognized it. Yeah. But now when I watch the Connors, I have to see, do they, I guess they don't have that afghan there anymore i i think they removed it honestly the only reason i chose it is because my great grandma uh quilted an afghan that's like the exact same and so every i time think I see everybody's it, like, yeah. grandma did <laughs> always the same color scheme too it's like yes did they get together all of them at the same time <laughs> Yeah. Um, Louis Armstrong's trumpet at Epcot, the American Adventure. Um, it was used in Disney songs, the Satchmo Way. I have that CD. And it has the handwritten sheet music and the behind the scenes photo of that recording. And then the Viking sword at Epcot in the Norway pavilion, the first time it was exhibited outside of Norway. And Abraham Lincoln's lap desk in the Magic Kingdom Hall of Presidents. And, um, this was that he would, he would carry this around when he was a lawyer in his saddlebag. And so he, and it, there was room for his documents and for an inkwell. And I know that that is something that fascinated me when I first saw it. And then the Carrollwood Pacific train cars at the Wilderness Lodge in the Boulder Ridge Villas. And the bridal um, couple paper sculpture in the Mexico Pavilion. And there's a cat and dog on the backside. And the cat has a fish um, band in his um, stomach. So um, sort of so the fish bones in his stomach there, I guess. And the mariachis on the bridge of the attraction were made by the same family who um, who made those figures as well. So um, anyway... And then they asked, what is their number one for each of them? Um, for Debs, the number one item in the collection is Walt Disney World's Dedication Day flags in the Magic Kingdom Hall of Presidents, as was mentioned earlier. Jackie's number one is the Pod Racer, Disney Hollywood Studios Star Wars Launch Bay. Mike's number one was the um, Sisters in Competition Case in the Morocco Pavilion. It's his first gallery. Um, it's the only all-female um, race, and the sisters drove um, an all-electric car. And then Jason's number one is the Tokyo Apartment in the Japan Pavilion in Japan's um, Cute Culture exhibit. 
And so that leaves about 2,386 objects on display. So that was the end of that panel. So. And then there was the trivia challenge on magical melodies. And uh, they had the Alani ambassador, and they um, who played the Hawaiian roller coaster ride on a ukulele. He's very good, too. I I was number four hundred and fifty seven out of one thousand three uh, thirty nine. That one that was a tough one for me. So then they had the, another trivia one: Walt's nineties world. Um, they had Muppets, and so what went on then in the 90s there? Muppets Lab, Food Rocks, um, Pleasure Island, Spectro Magic, Tapestry of Nations, um, The Magical World of Barbie, um, The Ice Skater at Blizzard Beach, Here Come the Muppets at Disney Hollywood Studios, Push the Trash Can, Extraterrestrial Alien Encounter, Disney Quest, Indiana Jones and the Stunt Spectacular, although they said that was really in 1989. Um, the Dinosaur Show at Animal Kingdom opened um, with the Discovery Riverboat Ride and Countdown to Extinction. And they said, every, and then they had, the, they said every 90s sitcom visited Walt Disney World. And they showed Basically, yeah. some of that, yeah. Then the 25th anniversary of the Cinderella Castle Cake there. We all remember the Cinderella Castle Cake. And then the Remember the Magic Parade were some of the highlights of that. Yeah, I I will say the only weird thing about the Walt 90s world, because they did it for the 70s, 80s, 90s, you know, they went through it with the 90s. It just felt a little too close. (laughs) Uh it, It felt like, oh, is it really enough time to appreciate a lot of the weirdness of this? And then I realized, like, no, it's been 30 years. I'm just, I'm finally officially old. So yeah. that's hard to grapple with. And, and, and now we are at the final panel. Yeah. Celebration of musical attractions of Walt Disney World Resort. And so John Dennis and Tom Fitzgerald from Walt Disney Imagineering, presided over this one. They had a The Magic of Walt Disney World featurette. And it and I remember seeing this, because it came out with the Snowball Express in 1972, and the score was by Buddy Baker. And it told people all about what Walt Disney World was. And um, John grew up in um, with Disneyland, he said. So at um, in the 1971 at the Magic Kingdom, the Mickey Mouse Review, Tom worked on this attraction, and this was an audio animatronic era orchestra led by Maestro Mickey and Harriet Burns worked on the figurines. Um, Bill Justice was the um, creative lead. David Snyder created Dax to digitally program um, the figures. And then this attraction went to Tokyo Disneyland. And the three Caballero figures, of course, when, when it closed at Tokyo Disneyland, the three Caballero figures returned. And they're now in the Mexico Pavilion and the boat ride there. Mm-hmm. Rio del Tiempo, I think. And they said the challenge with the original show was that the characters were bolted to the floor. And they were not as active as in the films. So this was reimagined as Mickey's Philhar Magic, and they recently digi- 
digitalized it and added the Coco scene as Un, Pono, Un Poco Loco um, as the signature song. And um, have you seen like video or anything of the Mickey Mouse review? Yeah, I watched. I watched the old videos of it. Mm-hmm. I remember. I've seen this both at um, Magic Kingdom in its day and in Tokyo I'm so when they'd go back and forth with in Japanese and English, and it was a wonderful, wonderful, sh- wonderful attraction. And um, so I, you know, so I, I'm glad that at least there's a sort of maybe and you can con- consider Mickey's Philharmagic an updated version of it perhaps but um and I, since then I have seen it at Disney California Adventure with the Coco scene and I like it this Mickey's Philharmagic is one of my must do attractions and when I'm at either park so um Country Bear Jamboree, talked about that. George Bruns and Exotensia worked on the lyrics, music, and story for this. And they showed a photo of the mile-long bar um, um, controller. And they wrote three different shows. So you wouldn't hear it repeat in the bar. Because I think we talked about this when we talked about Country Bear Jamboree. When you left, they had... You know, the the three talking heads were there talking in the bar. And so they um, had different shows so that if you were hanging out there a while, you would. um, Yeah. You wouldn't get bored. Exactly. A good detail to keep Uh people invested in something that's so meaningless. (laughs) Yeah, I agree. And then they talked about If You Had Wings that was sponsored by Eastern Airlines. The song was by Buddy Baker and Exitensio. And uh, this was narrated by Orson Welles. So he announced the arrivals at the beginning of the attraction in the, in the pre-show. And it was a Claude Coates show who loved um, shows with projections, apparently. So he would love today. Because <laughs> there's plenty of attractions with projections. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, then there was the Carousel of Progress. It opened at Walt Disney World in 1975. And, of course, we know that was transported from Disneyland. GE wanted a different song, not about the future. They wanted to talk about now. Um, Buddy Baker and the Sherman Brothers wrote um, Now is the Best Time of Your Life. For this one, but and um, but as we know, Great Big Beautiful Tomorrow was later um, restored, and then over at Epcot, um, George Bruns um, retired in 1976. So Buddy Baker arranged all the music, and there was 90 hours worth of music for all the pavilions and the showcases. And apparently, in the beginning, Marty Scalar said, um, "Where are the songs?" And so he tasked um, Randy Bright, um, who who found the person who wrote um, Jingles for Disneyland, and he had them write um, Living with the Land and Canada, You're a Lifetime Journey. And I think that was Bob Moline was the person who wrote those. And they said how songs are icons of the park, and you, you can't change the songs, but you can update them. He said, for example, Golden Dreams at American Adventure has been updated several times. So, um, and then they continued, Energy You Make the World Go Round 
was um, was in the universe of energy, and it had two songs. And the second one was um, the uh, was the um, was by the composer Pete's Dragon. Um, here, you know, it, we all know that one. Here we go. It's the universe mm-hmm. of energy. Yep. So. Feel the flow. Here we go. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I'm, that's, I, I'm done. I'm done. Yeah. Oh no! I was just going to hand over the rest of the show to you. To <laughs> no, start no, no, singing no, no. all of these. No, I don't get paid enough. <laughs> <laughs> um, George Wilkins. He uh, he was a protege a protege of Buddy Baker, and he wrote the song "If You Can Dream It, Then You Can Do It," which was not by Walt Disney. Yeah, no, originally a Walt Disney <laughs> quote translated no. into song. No, it was not. <laughs> Um, he said, oh, and we've talked about this and we talked about the Horizons Pavilion, of course. Tom Fitzgerald was the submarine boy. And then he said they would reuse, um, audio animatron figures, but they didn't have a teen figure for this scene. So Marty Scalar said Tom could be the sub boy. And I think that became his nickname for quite a long time, sub boy. And then Journey into Imagination, the, Sh- the Sherman Brothers wrote three songs, Magic Journeys, um, which was Marty Scalar's favorite Sherman Brothers song, and um, One Little Spark, and then um, also they wrote for that one. And in a sponsor's contract, it um, it was written to update the pavilion. So, um, so they wrote the Honey, I Shrunk the Audience with a score by um, Bruce um, Brofton. In there, yeah, Bruce brought them. So, yep, yeah. And then over at Disney MGM Studios, that was the shift to big Hollywood composers and scores and film history. So this was a challenge because not everyone wants to adapt someone else's music for a different medium. So Richard Bellis adapted um, John Williams' Indiana Jones, the, the music, John Williams' music for the Indiana Jones Stunt Spectacular. And then um, everything was re-recorded for the great movie ride. So, And then um, Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway, Chris Willis adapted um, the Mickey Mouse sheet music and wrote um, Nothing Can Stop Us Now. So... Over at Animal Kingdom, um, the Tree of Life originally was to be a quiet Zen place, sort of a quiet zone. And Michael Eisner said, you need a show. Um, and so that's when um, Michael saw It's Tough to Be a Bug and said, the show has to be on bugs. Um, and the the actual attraction show came out before the film and the finale is where pollinators and Kev- Kevin Rafferty met with bug experts and said I have 30 seconds for a song what's important about bugs and that's how we came up with we're pollinators uh, Bruce Broughton um, wrote and arranged the um, bug versions of the Disney songs for the queue Kilimanjaro Safari um, to give drivers a break they turn on the radio to play music. And so they went through 20 CDs and found a Swahili version of the Lord's Prayer. And that was selected um, by Tom for that one. In Pandora, they reached out to James Horner and he wrote um, 
the original theme for the Navi River Journey, and they had to adapt his original music for Flight of the Avatar because he passed away. And now they're currently working on the Star Wars Galactic Star Cruiser, and they have hours and hours of music, scores, and, and Gracie songs, and all that, and they're working on the music for Guardians of the Galaxy Cosmic Rewind. Um, there's going to be a new theme song, I think, for Epcot in 2023. And Tron Light Cycle, the Daft Punk theme music from the Shanghai version, is going to be tweaked. So out of all this, is there, Craig, is there like an, a, an attraction theme song that's your favorite? Oh, that is like picking my own child. That I don't currently have. Um, oh, well, dogs. <laughs> yeah, I've got my dogs, but I mean, I can easily choose a favorite one of those. I'm not going to say which one it is. Though. Okay. Just, no, you don't want to hurt their feelings if they're listening at the door. I'm okay hurting their feelings. I know one of them is actually listening on the door because every now and then I can hear the door kind of like press like it's trying to open. So I know that that's uh, one of their noses slightly pushing on the door. Um, I, I don't want to hurt their feelings. It, it, it is literally a tough, tough choice, though, uh, just because, you know, I've I've said on this show so many times that music is part of what is my passion with Disney, especially Disney parks. Um, I, I was actually just talking about this with my parents uh, this past weekend. We were talking about, like, you know, trips when I was a kid and such, and... When it was around 1995, we went down to visit my grandparents in Fort Lauderdale and went to the Disney store that was in their mall. And they still had copies of the official album that was like from 1991, 1992. And they bought me the cassette of that. And I listened to that thing to the point that I think I actually literally burnt out the entire tape of it. And that's how much I associated with the music of the parks. Like it was, it was so important to me. And, uh, so it, it, it's just, it's, it's too hard. I mean, I love stuff like pirates and I love the score to Haunted Mansion. Um, I, 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 I literally can't decide. Do you have one that's your favorite? Trying to think. See, there's area music I love. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, Main Street USA and New Orleans Square. You know, that that background music. Of an attraction that's really tough. If there's one that really brings me back. It has to be There's a Great Big Beautiful Tomorrow. Is probably one of my favorites. And um, I would say the Tiki Room is close for me in that way. Like, just... Or anything Adventureland that's um, uh, George Bruns, that's that that really mid-century modern style. That's that's mm-hmm. got to be up there. And the um, oh, America sings that whole soundtrack. I just love uh, uh, the way they adapted that music too from then, Disneyland. And for me, the Disneyland Phantasmic soundtrack, the original. Oh yes, um, yes, absolutely. I will put that on anytime I'm in a bad mood, and that will just that will mm-hmm. help out immensely. I do too. And paint the night. I have that soundtrack. Yeah. I won't get into how I got it. I got it before it got released on streaming and or wherever it is. But um, 
that but um I listen to that all the time. So but anyway, and then they had the finale, the big finale to Destination D23. And yes, Bob Chapik made a surprise appearance. No, no he did not. <laughs> um, Di Capella came out, uh, the Aca- Disney acapella group, and they premiered a new arrangement of the songs of Epcot medley that started the stream on December 3rd. They also did a Lion King medley. Then Cindy Winters from Lion King on Broadway performed um, Shadowland and Almost There from Princess and the Frog. And uh, and then she's part of the U.S. Disney Princess and Consort Tour that's set to launch in the spring of 2022, which I have not yet heard a thing about that. So hopefully that's still happening. I, I have not heard about it either. So we'll, we'll have to see. Yeah. And then Bardo came out and did a hip hop version of There's a Great Big Beautiful Tomorrow. And then the global team yes. of Disney Park Ambassador. Yeah, I'm not going to say anything more about that. And then so hip hop is just not the type of music I listen to. So I I can't appreciate it Agreed. As, Agreed. as others can. Yep. So um, then the global team of Disney Park Ambassadors um, walked across the stage. And then there was a uh, The Magic is Calling was sung by Kayla Alvarez. And this is the anthem of the 50th anniversary. And the all the, ca- the characters in their iridescent costumes came out. And then, just like magic, lots of streamers burst from the sky. And then um, Michael Vargo thanked um, cast members, and he said, fans are what and why we do what we do. Yes, they are. And then later that night, there was the D23 um, season streamings. Season streamings, ugly sweater Christmas party. So, Craig, why don't you tell us what that was like? Well, I will give you the... uh the short version of it, just because I was not there right when it opened up, and I did stay through basically the very end of it. But um, a, a general sense of it is that it was a it was a big party for everyone to come together with. And like I said, when you walked into it, they handed you a Hawkeye Santa hat, and you either had a keepsake collectible from the Disney Plus series Hawkeye. Or you had also inside of it a, a sticker that said, hey, you get to go meet Jeff Kinney and get an autographed book of Diary of a Wimpy Kid. And it was completely random. So I just want to make that clear. I didn't I didn't get it special because of being media or anything. I just randomly got it like so many people. And uh, it was, it was pretty I have, cool for that. I have to ask, what does a Hawkeye Santa hat look like? I mean, did it have an arrow going through it? Or uh, what? That would be hilarious. It was more of like red and green, and then it was like kind of 8-bit style. So like, think of like early Nintendo, how characters would be set up, where it was like just blocks. Um, so it, it was really loosely Hawkeye. Uh, it, it was cute. It was a cute little giveaway that they didn't have to do. So I kind of appreciate it for that. Uh, But inside, they had lots of desserts and uh, snacks that you could have. There were two photo ops. There was uh, Mickey and and Minnie in a holiday attire, not like 
ones that you normally see in the parks, uh, a different one that felt more exclusive to D23. And then there was Olaf, who met people for a very short time, and then he wasn't there. Um, on the stage, uh, Brett Iwin did a drawing demonstration where he drew uh, he drew Scrooge from a Christmas Carol, which that was really cool watching the voice of Mickey Mouse get to draw uh, on stage in front of an audience. Um, and then also to... Uh, Oh my gosh, I'm I'm blanking on his name, and it is really really upsetting me that I am. Um, Michael, you're going to have to help me here. As embarrassed as I am, and I'm not going to cut this out. The uh, I don't know who you're talking the about. The wonderful <laughs> short man who helped with um, with Cirque du Soleil. The wonderful that, short man who <laughs> that uh, designed the genie, Eric Goldberg. Gosh, oh, oh, okay, okay. Oh, the okay, the animator. Yes. All right. He also did. <laughs> that's the worst description. The the really nice short man, um, Eric Goldberg, <laughs> also did a drawing demonstration during the panel, and he actually he uh, and I believe that uh, Brett Iwin did it too. But uh, he definitely gave his drawing to one of the people in the crowd who was drawing along with it too. So they got a a one of a kind keepsake from the entire event which was really cool and then in the middle of the floor the thing that i was most excited about they had props from uh from holiday movies that you could see on disney plus including uh the 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 um uh models of the town in muppet's christmas carol that they used for kind of like the swooping shots in the beginning of the uh, in the beginning of the movie, over the credits, where it shows like the London town, they had a couple of those buildings on display in there. Uh, from Noel, they had they had a couple props from that. They had a couple props from Home Alone. And oh, did they have one. the chubby boy in a cage? Because that's where he belonged. The chubby boy from Home Alone, chubby boy from in a cage. The remake. No, Was no, it no. The no, remake no, that's on no. Disney Plus. No, that that home sweet home alone. They had home alone merchandise, <laughs> or not oh, merchandise. Oh, okay. um, they had uh, Kevin's his his nightgown, not nightgown, his uh, nightshirt that he wore. And mm. from there, um, from Noel, they had the book of the book of Santa, and that she carries around and looks through. And then from the Santa Claus, they had uh, the first movie, not any of the other bad ones. They had a list of all the kids as well as the cocoa cup that when he finally ends up at the North Pole that they give him cocoa that the one girl makes saying not too hot, not too whatever and blah, blah, blah. Uh, I don't remember the entire spiel of it, but they had all those props on display there. And that was the highlight for me, even though I'm like selling it is like, yeah, who cares about it? Uh, It was the, the Muppets Christmas Carol. I took like many photos of that i thought i was gonna cry looking at all of it but also home alone and santa claus are two of my favorite movies too so you must be excited that they're making a santa claus um series on disney plus they've announced i am cautiously optimistic about it (laughs) my official statement you can post it anywhere you want to my my co-host of connecting with walt is cautiously optimistic about it (laughs) All right. So sounds like you had a good time. Yeah, you know, 
it's not the selling point of Destination D23. It's that nice little, it's the nice little bit on the end. And like the last time around, the big thing was that it was a pajama party. So everyone got this one, everyone got dressed up in their holiday gear. The last one was everyone got dressed up in like pajamas and showed up and, you know, you saw characters in exclusive outfits. And so it kind of, it kind of matched that trend that it's, it's nothing groundbreaking. It's just a nice way to end the weekend. So mm-hmm. for that, I think they succeeded on it wholly. And, uh, you know, I, I, it's not a big bang to send you off, but it's, it's fond memories to say farewell on until the next time. Good. Yeah. And that does bring us to the end of our coverage of Destination D23 2021. Of course, we have the D23 Expo to look forward to in September. We have our tickets. So the, Craig got the good tickets. I did not. I did I did not luck out, but I will be there. If all goes as planned, we will both be there and we will of course recap all of that for you. Uh, and so, but now it's time for this week in Disney history. Okay, Craig, is it whose turn is it to start off this week? I think it might be my turn, but I okay. don't have my notes off. If you can start with yours. All right. Well, I will start with um, February 3rd, 1967 is my choice. And since we're talking about the 50th anniversary, well, Disney World have to start sort of go to when... Um, Plans were announced because it was on this date, February 3rd, 1967, that Royal Disney outlined his late brother's plan to build a theme park and the world's first futuristic metropolis, Epcot, um, the environmental prototype community of tomorrow. Um, when this is when Disney Productions, Walt Disney Productions announced it will build the world's first glass domed city in central Florida. Uh, and the theme park. <laughs> the movie presentation narrated by Walt Disney, who had passed away on December 15th, 1966, is called by by folks as Walt's last film. And it was called Project Florida, a whole new, Walt, whole new Disney world. And it premiered at the Park East Theater in Winter Park, Florida at 2 p.m., where it was screened for business and government officials. Uh, the 25-minute film showed uh, a 50-acre air-conditioned city of tomorrow centered on a 1,000-acre industrial park between Orlando and Kissimmee. So here is where, where everybody got their first glimpse of what Project X or the Florida Project was going to be. So, Craig, what about you? So the one that I pulled was from a couple days past yours, and I I think it's kind of an important day. Um, on February 3rd in 1986, this is when Pixar unfortunately ceased being part of Lucasfilm and became an independent company. And I, I think we all know where it kind of went on from that. And uh, it only only went up from there, obviously, the development of extra movies and then B 
becoming not just a, an incorporated part of uh, an incorporated part of a company, but became Pixar Animation Studios and eventually got bought out by Disney. And uh, a fascinating, fascinating way to hear all about this story is through uh, Ed Catmull's book, Creativity Inc., which, you know, I, I listened to the audiobook a couple years of that, ago of that, and I want to re-listen to it again. But uh, the history of Pixar is just so, so fascinating and mm-hmm. uh, it's so in- important to the Walt Disney Company as it is today, uh, even though it, they decided that it's not important enough to release uh, Pixar movies in theaters, but that's a, that's a whole other discussion that we've had before and we will continually have, hopefully not after at least a light year, but um, an important date, nevertheless, in Disney history that Pixar broke off from Lucasfilm and became its own, so it could eventually become part of Disney. Yeah, yeah. Now, you said, unfortunately... It broke off. Why was it unfortunate? What What could have happened if it stayed under Lucasfilm? I mean, eventually Disney bought Lucasfilm anyways. So who knows how much freedom they could have had under Lucasfilm. Maybe the Star Wars prequels would have been better if it would have stayed under Lucasfilm. Oh, because it would have starred Kermit and Miss Piggy. <laughs> No, 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 no. We, don't, we don't, we don't know anything. We don't know what could have happened. I'm, I, so I guess I should watch my wording a little bit better. But I, it's, you know, it, it, it is one of many, many moments in the Disney history that you can ask, like, what if this would have happened instead? I mean, that was the premise of that entire Marvel show on Disney Plus. But I feel mm-hmm. like this was a, this was a big one. What if Pixar? would have just stayed under Lucasfilm. Where would we all be right now? Would Lucasfilm be a part of Disney? I'm I'm not sure. Would Pixar be... I don't think Pixar would be a part of Disney if it'd be under it, but maybe I maybe anything could have happened. So uh, at the very least, it was, uh, it was a very, very important date in Disney history. Absolutely. I agree. So, and th- I, is the Pixar story still on Disney Plus? Yes, it is. Does that get that gives a good history? It, it does. I, I completely forgot about that, but yeah, mm-hmm. it does. Yeah. All right. Well, that's great. Two important dates this week in Disney history. Hey, Craig. A couple of episodes back, I was struggling for a term. We were talking about. I think journalism or media or something. And I said, there was a name for it. I want to thank all the listeners who contacted me and told me what it was. And that's the fourth estate Mm -hmm. is what it was the term I was struggling for. Yeah. That's what journalism used to be referred to. And um, I don't know if I'd call it that now. (laughs) <laughs> but um but back in the day when they when they were supposed to hold the government in check and and report to us as to what was going on with our government um and with the facts that they were regarded as the fourth estate and held in very high esteem and all that so thank you everybody who who shared that with me so and you know I was I was looking at what was coming up on since we talked about Disney Plus earlier uh with Destination D23 I was looking at what was coming up Disney Plus in February and, you know both for January and February I I don't know it was hard for me to get excited 
about stuff that was coming up. And the, the things that jumped out at me were like, the la- for February, the last two episodes of the Book of Boba Fett. I'm still one episode behind as of when we're recording this. Um, then there was the new Air Force One Flying Fortress, because I'm always interested in how things are made. And then they have the new Assemble. They have one on the making of Hawkeye and the making of Eternals. And I thought, okay, that could be interesting. And then Free Guy, I heard that was a good film or a fun film. Otherwise, there wasn't a lot. And it just seems like in January and February, they didn't release a lot to Disney+. And I'm starting to find I'm watching it less and less. Or I'm going back and, you know, watching the, you know, stuff in the, from the archives, from the vault. And I'm disappointed they're not releasing more from the vault. Yeah. I mean, and that's been one of our problems for a while with it is that they have slowed down so much on it. And I think I was more okay with it when the original programming was keeping me a little bit more occupied, but I, I'm not even going to try to pretend like I'm fully engaged in every single episode of Book of Boba Fett. It's it's been up and down for me, and I agree, it has been for me. As well. I'm hoping that uh, you know, I'm hoping that it ends on a high note and it keeps me invested. And the next Marvel show that comes around, I'm hoping that that keeps me engaged as well too, because I truly loved Hawkeye. But uh, it's they are hitting a point that I'm getting very concerned that they are abandoning their library and i wish i didn't feel that way but convince me otherwise i guess it's the best way to say it and that was their big selling point Mm -hmm. was their library and um yeah it seems like they've sort of dropped all that anyway so let's hope let's hope in the coming months there'll be some more interesting things popping up in there but um anyway that's it so craig until next time how can our listeners connect with you as always you can find me on all of the different shows i'm on on the dis unplugged podcast network and you can find me on social media facebook twitter instagram at teleclaster and then you can email me craig at wdwinfo.com what about you, Michael? You can send me messages at michael at wdwinfo.com. Twitter, I'm at mbowling121. Facebook, I'm michaelbowling-connecting with Walt. Instagram, I'm michaelbowlingthediz. And you can connect with me and Craig on Twitter at connectingwalt. If you'd like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes on the link Craig includes in our show notes or at disneyplug.com. Look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, Pandora, and Amazon podcasts, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings when possible. So thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. (laughs) 